You are listening to the 90-10 rule. 90% business, 10% music. Heavy words, little lies, telling everything but the truth, the truth. Three little words over time. To Leanne Lahavas, the song is called "What You Don't Do." Here on the 9010 Room, and Leanne's album came out July 31st. So make sure you go and check that out. Today on the 9010 rule. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I I feel like relationships is everything in every business, and if you don't take care of people and don't like, you know, I, it's funny because I had a kid that I I let you know that I tried to help get into the game, and the the thing that struck me about him that was so different than people who approach me everywhere I go is everybody comes to me and is telling me what they need from me, like what I can do for them. And it's like, but you're approaching me, but you're telling me what I need to do for you. Versus this guy, he came up to me, he was like, yo, you just teach me what I can do to make you better and make your job, you know, make you better at your job, and I'm willing to do it. I just want to help you, you know? And when he came from that approach, so that's the way, and that's the same, and what I saw in him was the same thing that made, that I kind of developed in myself was, you know, offering, you know, like giving, and then, you know, it, it comes back. You know, I've had a very, very successful career. You know, I'm not, you know, VP or the, the CEO or whatever, but, you know, in a, in a time and in a, in a place where the music industry has shrunk and it's half the size it was when I started when it, as an intern back in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
to be able to grow and get promotions and get jobs when many good people with 20 years of experience are out of work. I, you know, I'm blessed, man. So I shout out and salute everybody who helped me out. You know. To submit topic suggestions, email us at info at the 9010rule.com. Today on the 9010 Rule, um, we got a uh, extra, extra, extra special guest. I feel like I'm saying like special every time. Maybe I need to. They are special though. Like that's why they're on the show. I mean, very much so. But like, like, take for example with this guy in particular, man. This is one of the guys that everybody knows they know him, but they don't know that they they don't know why that they know him. Right? They don't know why. And they don't know why he's the guy in all those pictures. When they're looking at all the other celebrities, they see him, they just don't know it's him. This guy in particular, man, very, very good guy, a heart of gold. Uh, Wilt Wallace, the senior national director of promotions for Warner Brothers Records. Uh, Wilt, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Glad to be here, man. Appreciate that special, special intro. (laughs) We could put a little emphasis on special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be unique, you know, different. Indeed. But no, appreciate it, man. Of course, of course. So, uh... Well, I, I guess if you wouldn't mind, tell them a little bit about how you get, got started in the music industry and, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. Okay, cool. Um, I, uh, I'm originally from Northern Virginia, like the rest in D.C. Uh, Reston is the town I'm from. It's in the, in the D.C. area, the DMV area. And I moved down to Atlanta to go to college. I went to Morehouse and um, I moved down here to Atlanta probably around 99. And um, I met a guy named Orlando McGee who uh, you guys probably know, um, he's a very experienced guy in this music business. And me and him became friends. And um, at the time, he was working for uh, BME Recordings for Lil Jon and um, and all those guys. And so when I was in school, you know, Orlando knew I wanted to get in the music business, you know, so I would just kind of shadow him, go hang out with him, whatever. You know, whenever I wasn't in class, I would go up to his office over at BME. They used to be in this little house over in the hood off of Harwell Street over by um, the AUC Center in, in Atlanta. And I would just go down there whenever I didn't have class and just sit and just soak up, you know, John coming in, China White, Bone Crusher. You know, that was when that whole New South movement was really taking shape and taking flight, you know. So I would just hang around like a fly on the wall, just trying to soak it up and just hope that I learned enough to get, you know, to get going. And so uh, one of the owners of BME, Vince Phillips, um, he's an attorney. He uh, came to me one day and was like, yo, you go to um, college, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, why don't you take these little scrappy CDs and go pass them out? I was like, little who? You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know anything about Southern music outside of Outkast and Goody Mob. You know what I'm saying? I really didn't listen to anything outside of that. And so I started going to the campus and passing out CDs, passing out flyers. And then after a while, he's like, well, you know, you're 21. Why don't you go to the clubs? Introduce yourself to the DJs. You know what I'm saying? Try to get the records played. So I started doing that. And, um, you know, long story short, just can't continue to just pick up tasks and work my way in any way I could, you know, spend every hour I could at their office as they grew and they got their distribution through Warner Brothers and they moved to a bigger office and they got a bigger staff. And I just hung around, hung around until, you know, I got an opportunity to make a reputation for myself and start, you know, actually charging people to do what I was doing, which was just promoting music. Wow, man. So it just started with you just... Showing up, just being the guy. Hey, what do y'all need? Exactly. Now, you, I mean, you can't you can't win if you don't if you're not there. You know what I'm saying? You can't score if you don't shoot. So I just had to be there. You know what I'm saying? And you know, I was blessed enough. God put me in the right position to link up with somebody like Orlando and build a relationship. But I still had to show up. You know, when many people were going to the club to hang out, I'm just trying to show up at like 9.30 before, you know, they start, the line gets big, you know, try to get in, buy the DJ a drink before he gets popping and too many people in there, then I'm out, you know, because I'm in college, I'm broke, I'm paying out of my own pocket to get these dudes drinks, you know, and that was before the whole, you know, BMF and Jeezy era when, you know, like dudes was throwing thousands of dollars in the club. Like back then, you know, like... 02, 03, I could go into a, a strip club. That's where we broke a lot of the music. I go in there with 20 bucks, you know what I'm saying? And they would appreciate that I bought them a Bud Light, you know what I'm saying? But then, you know, five years later, after the explosion of the money, you know, you go in there, two, $300, and they looking at you like, damn, man, you broke, ain't you? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it was a different day and age. So I can't say that, you know, at that back then, it was before the MP3s exploded the way they they have now. So, you know, I still have vinyl in my trunk and I was running around servicing cats with records, you know what I'm saying, and stuff like that and going to record pool meetings and, you know, the Legion of Doom and the Super Friends and all the DJs out here. 
So right place, right time, and you know, a little bit of humility and a little bit of work ethic, and it all came together. That's what I was going to ask you, Ascoli. Um, what separated you from the other people that were probably trying to do? I'm sure there were other people trying to do the same thing in the same location that you were. Yeah. What do you think separated? I heard you say humility. What do you think separated you from the other guys? And kind of talk a little bit about what that was. Yeah, I think the one thing that is uh, served to my advantage is my humility. You know what I'm saying? And um, it was just being able to not really focus on my ego of being seen or being known or being hot or being popping. You know, like a lot of people will get in the situation and they see the artist come in. Now they want to go hang out with the artist. But that we don't need you to go hang out with the artist. They got a crew. They got friends. They don't need you. Right. We need you to come in here and sort these papers. You know, we need you to go send these emails. We need you to fax these copies, you know, fax or print or, you know, scan or whatever we were doing at the time. So Actual work. Yeah, yeah, you know, but, you know, and it was boring, you know, it's like it, it's so glamorous from the outside and you get inside and nobody wants you to do the glamorous part you know everybody will do the glamorous part for free you know you got girls lined up at the club to be down they need somebody to go do the grunt work so I think that that was one thing that separated me is I was willing to do the grunt work I worked for free for at least two to three years you know what I'm saying like I'm saying like if I didn't have class I was at that office so if it meant 8 a.m you know whenever I could the first person got there and I could get in I was there and I wouldn't leave till eight nine o'clock at night you know and then I'd go to the club and push records you know what I'm saying so I think it was just that willingness to not really make it about me and just be in that support role, like that utility player. Whatever you need, I fill in. You know what I'm saying? I do whatever. You need me to answer phones today? I answer phones. I'm a secretary. You know, you need me to call DJs tomorrow? I'm calling DJs. You know, I'm picking up my swag and, yo, what up? You know, this is Will Wilds from BME, you know, and pretending like I was getting paid. You know, you had to fake it till you make it in a, in a certain sense, you know, because um, a lot of people wouldn't give you an opportunity to uh, deal with them if you weren't in a certain position. So sometimes you had to front a little bit, but at the same time, I was just willing to do whatever I had to do to get in, you know? So you were dealing with affectation, making sure that you were saying the right words and having the right swag. Did you ever feel like, I want to be an artist now? Like, did that ever, did that bug ever bite you? Yeah, you know, not like I want to be an artist, like famous and stuff like that. But when I was in high school, I was uh, getting into a lot of trouble. And me and my friend, we, we, one of my friends, he was a really dope, was still is a dope rapper, you know. And um, we started connecting on music because I always was a hip-hop head. I always loved hip-hop. That's why I wanted to be in the music business. It wasn't because I thought that people in the music business were rich. It wasn't because I wanted to be famous and live a lavish lifestyle. It's because music was something that I found that I enjoyed. And somebody taught me, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. So I was kind of working on that whole thing. So when I was in high school, um, once I quit playing sports, I started realizing that all that extra idle time, I was filling it with the wrong things, you know, getting in trouble, girls, drugs, drinking, things that I shouldn't have been doing. So when I started making music with my homie, we started, you know, just in the basement, karaoke machine, uh, CD, you know, you used to sell the CDs with the the CD singles with the instrumental on there. We'd take the instrumental and just rap over it, write songs over it. And doing that started filling my time with something positive. So now I could talk about what I was going through that was negative instead of going out and living it. So music kind of, in a way, started saving my life. So I had the artist bug in that way, where I used to write to kind of get through tough times. But I never was like, yo, I'm trying to be famous. I'm trying to make money. Like, I'm really kind of a... Uh, borderline shy, more reserved type of person. So I never really wanted the spotlight, you know, so that bug didn't give me the spotlight bug, but yeah. I think that's important though. A lot of people don't recognize the, um, the fact that there are a, a crazy amount of jobs in the music industry that don't require you to be a celebrity or famous or popular. I mean, well, popular in a sense because you have to do network, you yeah, know, definitely, you networking definitely, job. But definitely. other than that though, you can really be behind the scenes and make a really big impact Definitely. Without being the person on the mic or in front of the camera. Definitely. Talk definitely. a little bit about how growing from, you know, you walking in and meeting Orlando to being the senior director at Warner Brothers. What is what what kind of things have you seen along the way? Um, man, a lot. Uh when when I was working for Orlando, um, like I said, BME had a distribution deal through Warner Brothers. So uh, the guy, we would have to call Warner Brothers to get what they call the BDS report, um, Broadcast Data Systems Report. You know, the Nielsen, the company that does the TV ratings, they also track radio spins. So we would get the report to see, you know, what stations are playing our, our records and how much they're playing it, you know. 
So I would have to call the guy at Warner Brothers and have him fax it over. You know, back then we still use fax machines, you know. So he faxed the BDS over every morning. I give it to Orlando. He read the report. And then what Orlando would have me do is when he would go on the road and he would meet DJs, radio DJs in other markets, he would come back and give me their business card or if they emailed him and asked him for some product. Because back then, like I said, the MP3 wasn't as, as common. People didn't have Serato yet. So... We, you know, if you were a DJ and you didn't want to have to buy all your music in the store, you would contact a record label and have them send you CDs and vinyl. So people would always contact Orlando to get serviced with the CDs and vinyl, and he would just print out the emails and have me follow up, get their, you know, call them, let them know what I'm saying, get their address, make sure it's right, blah, blah, blah. So through doing that, we would find out what DJs weren't being serviced by Warner Brothers. So then he would have me follow Warner Brothers. Okay, I just serviced DJ B-Lord in South Carolina. He's not getting product from you. You guys need to put him on your list. So it comes straight from the plant, not from us and not on our FedEx account. Because, you know, so right. it's like, so stuff like that. So Spinning up our budget. Yeah, right. So long story <laughs> short, through that, I started building relationships with people at Warner Brothers. So I'm calling them, you know. Little that I know at the time, they didn't really like me because they're like, this kid's always like, you know, trying to pull our card, you know, saying we're not doing this, we're not doing that. I think I'm helping out, you know, but <laughs> so long story short, after a, a while of working at BME in um, in an intern capacity, because I was working for free, um, my brother was living in LA at the time and he was working in the film industry. He still does. Um, he was, he was uh, producing his first movie and... Um, I was like, man, you know, he was him and his business partner were in the industry rubbing shoulders with a bunch of people that I thought I needed to meet. And I felt like my career in Atlanta, I had just graduated college, bills were racking up, and I was like, I just didn't feel like it was going far enough, fast enough. And so with my brother out there in position, he was like, well, why don't you come out here and you can run around with us and kind of see if there's another circle or you bring what you have in Atlanta out here and maybe you can connect some dots. So I moved out there and um you know, I tried to reach out to the people in Warner Brothers, closed doors, closed doors, you know. And then eventually, this is, you know, I'm fast forwarding, but like after I I had started working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car before I left Atlanta, just so I could save up enough money to move to L.A. Transferred with the company. So now I'm out in L.A. working this job that I hate, 50, <laughs> 60 hours a week, you know, wearing a suit in the summer, sweating, shoes wet, dress shoes wet from washing cars and all kinds of stuff. So I'm stressed out, man. One day, I, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm with my brother. We're meeting Fat Joe and Nas and all these, but nothing, you know, I'm just like my brother's brother. I'm not like, yeah. nothing's happening. He's you know what I'm saying? It's just, yeah. So it's just like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's Ronnie's brother. Cool. Okay. All right. You know, nice to meet you. Oh, you want to do the music thing? Oh, okay, cool, cool. You know? So one day I'm on my lunch break at Enterprise and I'm like out there, feet hurt, stressed, sitting there like, man, what do I do, man? I've been out here six months. Now I'm just turning to the guy that works at Enterprise. At first it was like the guy who's hustling in Moonlight, and now I'm just the guy at Enterprise. And that wasn't how I planned it. So Did you have a business card with your name on it that say Enterprise? Yeah, all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You official then. I was official. Oh, yeah, I was all up in it. So Orlando calls me on my lunch break. And now at this time, Orlando, I think he had... He might have still been working at BME, but I know he had started managing the affiliates, which was DJ Drama, DJ Sense, and uh, Don Cannon. And, you know, they were around, they, they were working together before I left, so I used to see them meeting and talking about ideas and stuff. Now, by this point, they have, I think they had the show on Sirius, Satellite Radio, the mixtapes are popping, the Lil Wayne dedication, the TI tapes, like every, and I'm like, damn, I shouldn't have left Atlanta. I was in the middle of it. And I didn't even realize it. Now I'm out here in LA. So Orlando calls me. He's like, yo, man, you want to get back in the game? I was like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Of course, you know? So he's like, well, you know, they're going through some restructuring at Warner Brothers and um, I think they need some help, you know, so I could probably get you a meeting. Can I, can I say something before you continue? Yeah. I think the listeners need to understand what Warner Brothers mean because a lot of times people don't recognize that there are only three major labels left. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Warner Music Group, which owns Warner Brother Records, who I work for. Um, and it's uh, Sony, and it's Universal. So this is a really big deal. Yeah. You're getting the opportunity yeah. to be in one of the top three huge. Yeah, of huge. all the record labels that are in the world. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, now Please it's proceed. A big deal. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, Warner Brothers, a lot of people associated with Bugs Money, you know, film, TV, but when you're thinking Warner Brothers, the record label, I mean, you're talking Prince, Madonna, you know, Green Day, Eric Clapton. You're talking like history, you know, like catalog, Fleetwood Mac, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, real solidified history. So um, 
So yeah, Orlando's like, yeah, you know, I'll try to get you a meeting. So I'm chasing the guy, calling him. He's like, you know, he answers the phone once, then he's like just blowing me off, blowing me off for a while, you know. Um, he, he's he's still a good friend of mine, but um, at that time he was he was ducking me, ducking. Me. Oh, I'm going out of town. Send me an email. I hit you when I get back. And then you know he just never respond. I'm emailing him every day, you know. So finally, I tracked him down, got the meeting. I'm in the meeting, right? I'm I'm still working at Enterprise. It's uh, at Enterprise during that time. If you worked a Saturday, you got what they called a flex day. So you could take half a day off during the week, either the morning, before noon, or afternoon. You got half a day off, whatever. So I used my flex day because I was working that Saturday to set up this meeting to go to Warner Brothers and meet with this guy. You know, he's like, be there at 10 a.m. So me thinking like, you know, you show up on time, you're late, you know, so I show up at like nine. You know, I'm just trying to show that initiative, that eagerness. I I want this job. So I'm in there at nine, sitting in the lobby. I mean, in like the office, it's like this historical building. It's like, it looks like a ski lodge. It's like totally like record label swagged out. You come in, it's got the shag carpets and the leather seats and you're seeing pictures of Madonna and Eric Clapton and all these like, you know, legendary musicians on the wall. So I'm like, you know, nervous, like this is the big time, you know, this isn't just some little rap stuff, no disrespect to, you know, the rap game, but it's like, yo, this is the stuff I, you know, this is history, you know? And so- 9.30 9.30 rolls around. 10 o'clock rolls around. He's still not there. The, the receptionist like, yo, I called him. You know, he didn't pick up. I emailed him. He didn't respond. I'm like, it's cool. So finally around 10.30, another dude walks in, and he goes to the desk and asks to meet with the same guy. The guy's name is Brandon Scales. He's like, yo, I'm here to meet with Brandon. I'm like, okay, so at least he's coming in. You know, but I'm looking at the <laughs> clock. I got to be at work at 12. I still got you know, I come in in my T-shirt and jeans thinking music industry swag. I still got to go change into my suit and tie for Enterprise. You know, right. I'm making 40000 a year in Enterprise, so I can't just walk away from it yet. You know exactly. what I'm saying? Until I got something better. So I'm in there, and uh, it's finally like 11 o'clock. And the guy, Brandon, comes out, and he comes to get the other guy. Like, not, he doesn't even, like, he walks right past me, goes to get the other guy. And as he's walking the other guy back, the reception is like, hey, this guy, this is 9 a.m. waiting on you. And he's like, oh, my bad, I forgot. Okay, come back. And then he sits me, like, in a little cubicle and goes and meets with the other guy first. So now it's like 1130. I'm like, man, I'm going to be late to work. But I'm like, you know, this is my dream. You know, you got one shot, you know. Right. So finally he calls me in his office and we're talking and he's like, yeah, you got your old DJ list, you know what I'm saying, from when you worked at BME? I'm like, yeah, I got all my DJ contacts. He's like, break it out. Let's call some DJs. I'm like, hey, man, I ain't bring it with me. And he's like, oh, you don't want it. And he turns his chair and he goes to his computer and just totally like zones away from me. Like, and I'm like, oh, it's over. Like, I just blew it. You know what I'm saying? I'm in here and I got to, I've been chasing this moment <laughs> for years now. You know what I'm saying? Thinking because oh. when the year before I moved to LA, I told my brother-in-law, because my brother, I told him I was gonna move out there, my you know, my brother's wife's brother. And and he's like, Well, what you gonna do? You just gonna come to LA and just just make it? I'm like, nah, I'm gonna work for a, a major record company. He's like, Oh, so you're just gonna walk up and work for a major label. I'm like, yeah. So this is like, you know, two years before this moment. I've been planning to work for a major record label since that time. And now this guy is just like, he just puts the sheet over his eyes. Like, he's like, you're done. And I was like, so I panic. I'm like, yo, what can I do? What can I do? So I'm like, break out your list. I'll call your DJs cold. Whoever is on your list, I'll just call them and show you how I can get, you know, get relationships going and get and get the job done. And it, it sent off a light bulb in his head. Like his eyes lit up and he's like, okay, okay, you're hungry. He's like, he's like, you know what? Come back tomorrow at 10 a.m., and we'll start calling DJs, bring your list, and we'll see what you got. He's like, right now, I got a budget that I'm paying $800 a month to people to come in eight hours a day, three days a week. And that's all I got. But you got to come in and show me that you deserve it more than them before I take it away from them and give it to you. So I walk out of that meeting, called Enterprise, and said, I'm never coming in again. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, I'm making 40 a year, and he just offered me a possibility to prove that I can work hard enough to get $800 a month. <laughs> that, I, that you know, 1099, I still got to pay my own taxes out oh, of this wow. $800 a month. This ain't no W2 job, you know. And um I was like, but you know, I might never have a chance like this again. So, long story short, I went in there, I started making calls. At the time they were working E40 tell me when to go. Um E40 was signed to BME at the time. It was his first album on BME/Warner Brothers. He had just moved over from Jive. And they couldn't get tell me when to go going in Atlanta. So he's like, you're from Atlanta. Get it going in Atlanta. 
And boy, did they get going. So yeah, I mean, you know, luckily at the time, there's a guy on Hot 107.9 in Atlanta named King Art who just happened to be from the West Coast. So he just liked it because he's from the West Coast. So King Art didn't know me from a can of paint. I just started calling him, talking about the record. He's like, oh yeah, I like that record. He started playing it. It made me look good. And then there's another guy who was young who I had talked to when he was in college. I worked him when he was in Huntsville. And um, he didn't remember me, I'm sure, but I still had his number and his name is DJ Infamous. And he was on V103 at the time. And he was just young and hungry and in a new position. was like, yeah, I play you from Warner Brothers. I got you. I'll look out for you on the record. So he started playing it. So both of them started playing it. It made me look good. Two months later, I had a job as Brandon's assistant. He was like, I know you're not trying to be an assistant, but that's all I got. I got a full-time position. Well, actually, he was like, first, I can run you through this temp agency. You get paid $12 an hour, you know, it's better than that that side money and it'll be W-2, you know, whatever, but you got to sign up with the temp agency. They'll pay you, but you work with us. So I did that for a month and then he got me a job full-time making 30 a year with Warner Brothers as an assistant. And um, that was when the fake it till you make it came back into play. You know, I just acted like I was a, a regional or a rep or a mix show guy, not like I was an assistant. You know, I just called DJs all, all day and whatever extra stuff Brandon needed done, I would just do it. And um, I've been... Pretty much at Warner ever since. There was a year where I left Warner voluntarily. I resigned, and then I came back a year later. So except for that year, I've been there since February 06. That's a very interesting story. And what I, what I noticed, I, I'm always listening to what people say and also what they're not saying. Mm-hmm. What I did notice was that you give a lot of credit to other people for your success. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I feel like relationships is everything in every business. And if you don't take care of people and don't, like, you know— I, it's funny because I had a kid that I, I let, you know, that I tried to help get into the game. And the the thing that struck me about him that was so different than people who approach me everywhere I go is everybody comes to me and is telling me what they need from me, like what I can do for them. And it's like, but you're approaching me, but you're telling me what I need to do for you versus this guy. He came to me. He was like, yo, you just teach me what I can do to make you better and make your job, you know, make you better at your job, and I'm willing to do it. I just want to help you, you know? And when he came from that approach, so that's the way, and that's the same, and what I saw in him was the same thing that made, that I kind of developed in myself was, you know, offering, you know, like giving. giving. And then, you know, it, it comes back. You know, I've had a very, very successful career. You know, I'm not, you know, the, VP or the, the CEO or whatever, but you know, in a in a time in a in a in a place where the music industry has shrunk and is half the size it was when I started when as an intern back in the late '90s, early 2000s, to be able to grow and get promotions and get jobs when many good people with 20 years of experience are out of work, I, you know, I'm blessed, man. So I shout out and salute everybody who helped me out. You know, absolutely, man. That is that is great, and and even what you're talking about, like it sounds so so unlikely. Like there's so many of those people out there who right now are the broke guy in the club, especially in the strip club. Yeah, twenty dollars. Yeah, nowadays, like I didn't yeah. sidebar. I didn't even realize that BMF started the whole make it rain. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's yeah. Uh, we might have had that conversation. Yeah, off of. <laughs> <laughs> they they. I mean. Yeah, they they used to go in the regular club and make it rain. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like when Visions was popping in Atlanta, you know, it was I was used to seeing people throw money in the strip club, but in a regular club, right. you know, that Jeezy record would come on and money would just start flying everywhere. And I'm like, why are they throwing money? You know what I'm saying? It's a regular club and girls are running, scattering to the floor like mice after cheese. It, it was crazy time. Not to mention they came they came up to the front in like however many Lamborghinis oh, and yeah, Ferrari, whatever it was. It was yeah. yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy time. And then, but literally changed the culture from doing it. Yeah, and it's funny because I like I left Atlanta right as that was starting, like two. 2005, summer 2005, when all that explosion really took, you know, we're about to have the 10-year anniversary of Jeezy, the yeah. Snowman, all that's happening this year. And um, I left, and that's when I went to LA, it was 2005, and I came back in 2008. And it was like, almost like I had been in a time capsule for three, like for 30 years, because it's just a different world. You know, it's like, yeah, strip club, strippers driving around in $100,000 automobiles. And, <laughs> you know, it's just a, it, just a different world. You know what I mean? Like, it really changed. It really changed. What do you think? Okay, so since you brought it up, tell us about, like, when you came back to Atlanta, what do you think made Atlanta get up there like that to where, like, the, the nation is listening to what we're playing as what's going to be the, the, the sound of the culture? 
I mean, you know, I think everything's cyclical, and I think it was just Atlanta's time. I think that John, you know, planted a lot, you know, and I'm not just saying that because I worked for John, but I think that Lil John planted a lot of the roots with his production because it got to a point where it wasn't only the records he was making, you know, that whole thing with, with like the sound where he slowed down the bass music and called it crunk, you know, and, and it was like chants, you know, you didn't even have to have bars. You just had these chants and these hooks and it just like caught on. Were you with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. And then you had like the Nas's and the ice cubes and people, you know, who were the Kings of other, le- of other regions coming and rapping on his tracks. Now, everybody wanted to be on like Lil Jon's tracks. And then, you know, the, the rise of T.I. and trap music and, you know, Jeezy and the whole snowman campaign and, and then drama being like in the center of all of it. You know what I mean? It was just like the time and place. Everybody was moving and it, it just just worked, man. I, I can't really put my finger on one thing or credit one person, but I think that all those forces working together, right time, right place, and it just dominated, man. I, mean, I actually just noticed something because Orlando was working with organized Exactly. And so what if, what if that common thread through that was, you know, the the outcast movement kind of moved into the Lil John movement it and did. that's what it just so or, Orlando is like the guy in the middle of all this. No, yeah, the, the Orlando, person you, you learn from. Now you're right cuz low key, you know, a lot of people don't like it. it. Don't I shouldn't say don't like it, but I don't hear a lot of people say it, but Orlando has been tied to a lot of influential movements and a lot of influential things throughout the culture. And, you know, when I met him, actually, when I first met him, because he he used to work with my dad. Like, my that's how I met him, through my pops, outside of music, you know. And he was still working with Organized back then. And I used to just go hang out with him in the studio, go sit over in the dungeon on Adams Drive with Rico Wade and those guys. And, you know, I, I from, like, eighth grade, you know, I was listening to Outkast. I loved, that, you know, what they were doing. And you're right. He is a common thread through how all that stuff grew, you know, and. I mean, the South has had a, a run of almost 20 years now, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, at least 15. And it's know? so amazing because everybody hated the South music in other places. Yeah. But now we we made it to, to where the sound, basically the sounds that you're hearing are very influenced by what was going on here in the South first. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, there was also something about Atlanta, how people were working together. You know what I mean? It wasn't like the whole New York thing, how everybody wanted to be king of New York at one time. And it was like, you couldn't really, you know, collab because it's like, nah, I got to be the king. I got to be the king. And it's like people in Atlanta were working together. And I'm sure there was, you know, little beefs and tiffs here and there, but you saw a lot of different crews merging together and, 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 you know, pushing each other on. You know, I never saw organized hating on anybody. I felt like they they pushed everybody up. You know, same thing with John and them. You know what I'm saying? They just... They gave, you know, they they contributed to the culture. They believed in what they were doing. And when people called them country, when people called them slow, they they didn't care. They didn't stop. They just right. kept doing what they doing. You know, I mean, you know, the the v, I thought VH1 did a good job with the um, documentary they did about Atlanta. I felt like, you know, of course they skipped a lot of things, but when you have a limited amount of time, you have to. But you know, it gave people a good idea for a little bit of the timeline, even the stuff that happened before I moved down here, the stuff in the '80s that I I didn't even know about. You know. There was always that rumor going around that that John dropped that yeah that Usher record, even though he wasn't supposed to. Did you did you do that? Was that your work? I, I, <laughs> well, you put him on the spot. Like, <laughs> no, that, you know, I, I'm, I I remember when that record came out. I do remember I was working. I was at BME when that record came out, and I do remember all the controversy around yeah, and it changed a lot of people's lives. Yeah, yeah. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> Yeah, I'd take it. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, at the end of the day, how can you be mad at a hit record? You know what I'm saying? That you know, it was probably his biggest record to date yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's still I'm, a huge record. Yeah, I mean, it, come on, right? Maybe it may be the biggest one still. It's yeah. one of the biggest records for all three of their careers. You know what I'm right. saying? For yeah. Luda, John, and Usher. You know what I'm saying? That just changed everything. You right. know what I mean? So. You know, how can you be mad at that? You know, I hear a lot of stories about Rico Wade doing the same thing back in the Outkast days. You know, L.A. Reid would be like, yo, this is the single. And then Rico would be like, put the record out. And right. Just, you know what I mean? Hey, man, you can't be mad at a music guy for knowing music, you know? and That's part of being creative is it, that you it, have the ear. It is. And I think it's important to to um, to keep that spirit alive because sometimes we get so caught up in like the 90% and neglect the 10%. Right. And... There's no point in the 90% if the 10% is not able to thrive. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
my thing is I could probably make more money if I had spent the last 20, you know, 15 years working at a bank and working my way up in a corporation or some type of structure like that. I probably could have made more money, but I couldn't dress like I dress. I couldn't have the fun that I have. I couldn't, you know, be in a creative field. So I, I think that it's important to keep that creative vibe alive because that's, that's what drew me to this. It wasn't the money, you know what I'm saying? So. That's actually an important point that you just made. The ninety percent, even though it is ninety percent business, yeah. Without that ten percent, the ninety percent falls to the ground. Yeah, it does. You know, it's like people can can try to put everything in black and white and in numbers as much as they want, but there's certain things you just can't explain. You know, a hit record is just a hit record, and you can't decide that in a boardroom. You can't calculate it on a computer. It just happens. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's like. Yeah, the 90% is so important and it, it does dominate, you know, but at the end of the day, it's like you said, it's nothing without the 10%. It's just interesting to hear you say that, especially in your role to say that, because like there are there are tons of people right now that think that they have like this special formula for what makes a hit record and why it's supposed to be the way it is. I mean, whether it's an R and B record or hip hop, R and B feel like their record's not gonna be a hit unless there's a rapper on it. Rappers feel like their record's not gonna be a hit unless it's a singer on the hook. So I I, be, I believe that people think that, and I believe that people can come up with um, certain approaches that work more than others, but there's no, you know, full foolproof plan. There's no, you know what I'm saying? Like, if anybody just got it right all the time, then we would all just go to them and they would just be the, the producer or the executive that gets all the hit records out. But all producers have flops. All executives have flops. So, you know, nobody has it right all the time. If it, You know, people come to me all the time and they're like, man, you know, I'd have hits if I had the money. And it's not necessarily true. I mean, the major labels have a lot of money and they still put out a lot of bad product. It doesn't work. You know uh-huh. what I'm saying? So, uh-huh. yeah. if they, ha- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's just true. You know what I'm saying? It, you know, I mean, so I, I just, I feel like you, you can't, you can't put in that. Because again, at the end of the day, it's music, man. This is People react to it. There's a vibration in the sound that you can't explain. Science. That you just feel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you feel it in your body. You know, the first time you heard uh, whatever your favorite song was, it wasn't necessarily because of the way it is now, where you see the video or you know what the person looks like or you knew their story. It was just a feel. You know what I mean? And you're like, I, like my dad used to have a cassette tape of me singing along to Marvin Gaye's Sexual Healing when I was like three years old. Uh-oh. Like not, not singing the words, but just to the, to the melody of it because right. it just meant something. I didn't know anything about sex, healing, Marvin Gaye or anything, but it just felt right. It felt good. So, right. you know, again, at the end of the day, I don't think you can just calculate that in a room based on numbers and business acumen and all that. You know what I'm saying? It helps to have that stuff, but right. I don't think that it, that, you know, dictates. Speaking of a little bit more on that though, there's there's an idea that's out and around now that um there's no good music anymore, especially when it comes to urban music, when it comes that's to the hip hop. That's not true. That's so, not true. where does somebody uh where does somebody like a Warner Brothers executive, where do you guys look to find new music? How do you guys find new music? We look everywhere. I mean, cuz music's everywhere. You know what I'm saying? It it's on the internet, it's in the streets, it's in the clubs, it's on people's iPods, it's everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So you really can't just put it in one box. But I mean, anybody that wants to say that there's no good urban music or if they want to say that like hip hop is dead, I mean, you know, then they haven't heard Kendrick Lamar's new album. You know what I'm saying? And that's not because he's just on a major label or has Dr. Dre. It's just a great music. You know, it's just a great project. And, you know, there's, I think that it's actually a renaissance going on. I think that there's a lot of great artists out. I think that, you know, also... You know, in my career, I worked with Talib Kweli at one point, and we were in a radio interview, and the, the jock asked him, does it upset him that he's not more successful? And he's like, success is in the eye of the beholder. He's like, I tour 250, 300 days a year doing what I love to do. You can't tell me that's not successful. Right. You know what I'm saying? Or, for instance, I was with Hobson in New York last week um, doing sweat, uh, or whatever, a couple weeks ago, doing like uh, Sway in the Morning and some of the serious shows and taking them around New York. And... Same thing, some of the interviewers asked him, you know, if he was upset that he doesn't get the notoriety of some of the mainstream artists. And he's like, you know, I make more money touring than most of the artists who are on the chart. How can I be mad? You know, I love my, you know, I love what I do. My fans love me. I love them. You know, like, so at the end of the day, you know, I I feel like there's great music out there. It might not always be on the radio or the television, but there's a lot of non-traditional avenues to get music now. You know what I'm saying? So I just feel like, 
you know, there's, there's music for everything, you know what I'm saying? So I, I just feel like when people say there's no good music, they're kind of just putting the blinders on and being negative because there's a lot of good music out there. Right. So we're going to get into this Hobson record now. Tell us a little bit yeah. about the record. The record's called Fly. It's on his uh, new project, um, Pound Syndrome, dropped uh, July 24th. Um, it's just a record where he kind of talks about you know, all the, kind of like being plugged into the matrix, like how we're so consumed with um, the view of what mainstream media and television is trying to sell us. And then we start adapting these philosophies and these ways of dress and culture that we think are ours, but really it was sold to us and kind of embedded in our brains since we were like two or three years old. Like we're watching TV and they're telling us what we're supposed to like and telling us how we're supposed to dress and telling us how we're supposed to act. And we think we're being independent, but we're really just feeding off of what they want us to to be. You know, it's like, it's a game. It's the Matrix. And he actually has in the video, like these white executives in this boardroom playing like a PlayStation, like they're playing with people's lives, you know, like they dress the guy up like a thug and they, you know what I'm saying? And like, so it's like, it's really dope. It's a really dope concept. And he's just talking about unplugging and just getting back to the human experience and the independent experience of really just you know, turn the TV off, turn the radio off and really find out who you are, what you like and be yourself and not plugged into the machine of what they're trying to sell you to be. Okay, let's get into the Hobson record and we'll be right back with the 90-10 rule. I was taught that education is the only way to make it. That how to get so much money inside my savings. My teachers never saw the heights that I was fucking aiming. Did the man who invented college go to college? Hmm, okay then. Am I the only one that noticed humans on the same shit? Y'all thoughts are selling on the same shit. And if that's the case, then that's the reason that you ain't shit. Let me enlighten you, my niggas. Just let your brain drift. First of all, the best type of marketing is marketing that doesn't feel like marketing. It makes the people feel like they're a part of it. And when it's done right, corporations think it's marvelous. They feed us these ideas and then we place them in our hearts to sit. It's why players are good at getting chicks. It's why Nike is good at selling kicks. It's why Disney is loved by all the kids. Why McDonald's owners are super rich. We too blind to ever see him pitch. See, when this happens, we take our health, wealth, lives, and just hand them off. Thinking that we did this from organic thoughts. I know you've seen parents trick kids with candy toys and Santa Claus. The same method is used to trap adults. But instead of candy, it's with money, religion, drugs, and alcohol. Mention that shit and this go arouse us all. I done seen niggas get into fights over cigarettes like a pack of dogs. They get you hooked and then they laugh at y'all. I really hate to break it to you, but your life's being played with. You have not witnessed the world cause you're stuck in the matrix Everything we have been taught was all a lie Open your eyes, open your mind Man, can't you see we're robots who know not what we're doing? We got no shot in the real world until we climb out of this ice cold box. Your whole life has been part of a whole plot to keep you at the bottom while they on top. Stay quiet, then they won't stop. They always trying to show us what we don't got. They do it to all of us till we finally break and go cop a gold watch, knowing we need the cash for Rick. My ass is sick just thinking about how rich and powerful all these bastards get. They package ideas like it's oxygen. They make us feel like if we ain't got it, we fucked and we cannot fit in. This fucking system is not your friend And understand they're controlling your thoughts Cause they got a lot to win Niggas get turned away when I mention this Ignorance is bliss, but I don't give a fuck I don't sense a shit The Matrix is real when you done entered it It's way too intricate for you to ever realize That you fucking simpleton I really hate to break it to you But your life's being played You have not witnessed the world Cause you're stuck in the Matrix Yeah, fuck Hollywood, fuck all these reality shows Making us feel lame unless we blowing stacks on new clothes Making us feel like we ain't cool unless we have a few hoes Making us feel like we ugly unless we have a new nose I see naturally beautiful women get Botox, fake tits, fake lips They so brainwashed and it doesn't make sense Focus on your life and the path you pursuing Cause y'all too busy worried about what Kim Kardashian's doing Check it most of the shit that you sheep are watching on television is fake as fuck and it's not real. I rebel against it, it's the devil's business, they just reel y'all in. If they say it, we do it, y'all, I'm trying to tell y'all, man. The system created the stereotype for the black image. That's why my people are scared to be different. Why don't you get it? I'm done practicing these ridiculous rituals. It's time I become a real individual and just do me. I really hate to break it to you, but your life's being played with. You have not witnessed the world cause you're stuck in the 
The song you were just listening to was Fly by Hobson. All right, so coming back, uh, well, before the break, Will, you were talking a little bit about um, taking your artists around to do different uh, promo tours and, you know, interviews and things of that nature. Right. Um, and one of the things that, because I, like, I started as an artist, so one of the things that stuck out to me was about how the interviewer, like with conscious artists, they always kind of down, I feel like they always downplay them and try to play it to the left. And so are you mad that someone's, like do you feel that they always like kind of do, maybe not always, but is that a bait question? Or <laughs> I feel like sometimes it is a bait question. You know what I'm saying? Like you hit a person in the in the sore spot and you get more emotion out of them. It makes for a better interview. And it's the whole shock jock thing. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes I feel like certain interviewers might actually be a fan of the artist. And they're upset about the fact that their radio station doesn't support the artist more or that the artist doesn't get more mainstream um, notoriety. And so they're kind of like, yeah, you know, do you feel like I feel like this is messed up, man? You know, like, why aren't they playing you? You know, stuff like that. But I definitely have been in a, quite a few situations where uh, interviewers throw those bait questions out there, especially when it comes to like rap artists and like beefs with other people and stuff like that. Like, so such and such said this and how do you feel about, you know, and it's like, man, we didn't come here to talk about that, man. I'm just trying to, you know, push my music and, and embrace my fans. You know, I don't want to talk about that other guy, you know. Right. So. But, you know, that's what, it's what people like, you, man. That's why um, reality shows uh, get good ratings, right? You know, people like drama. Well, I, I guess I mean there's definitely a a a market for the drama, mm-hmm. but you know I mean uh, some people really prefer music, and I, I guess that's that's, that's something that you you know kind of deal with on the path. Yeah. In, in fact, um, because you've seen so much of the music industry change just from your experience, like from the inside and and as a fan. So, right. is there? Um, I don't know. What kinds of things would you say that you've seen an artist in trying to promote their record have done absolutely wrong? Ooh, wrong things not to do. Right. Huh. Yeah, he threw you off there. You, you thought he yeah. was going to ask you the positive yeah, one, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I came yeah, with yeah, the yeah, Steph Curry yeah, cross. Yeah, you, came, you came with the crossover. Um, <laughs> Just treating people bad, you know, like we're out on the road and certain artists like might be in an interview and instead of being up on the mic and being excited and engaging their interviewer and and trying to build a relationship, they're kind of like, yeah, you know, so yeah, you know what I'm saying? I'm just out here, you know, like they act like they are interested and, and they, and it leaves the, the radio station or the television station with a sour taste in their mouth. So they're less likely to support you if they don't have to. You know what I'm saying? Like, as, soon, as, well, as long as you got a hit, you're good. But as soon as you don't got a hit, they're not looking to help boost you back up because of the way you treated them. So I've seen people, you know, not just with the interviewers, but also with their fans. You know what I'm saying? Out on the road. And, I, you know, sometimes you can't take every picture. Sometimes you can't sign every autograph. But there is a respectful way to treat people and a disrespectful way to treat people. And sometimes I see people treat people in a disrespectful way. And those same people, you know, I'm a firm believer in energy just in life. You know, the type of energy you put out is the type of energy you get back. And so a lot of artists that I've seen, not only on their records, but actually in their everyday life are out there putting bad energy out there. And then when I see them end up in a bad position, it doesn't surprise me a lot of times, you know? So that's what I would say. I would say it's just, you know, it's, it's just regular same mistakes we all make as humans, but it's just personified because they have a, a camera and a light and they're under a microscope, you know? So it, it's, um, it's magnified, let's just say. Yeah. And, and that's not just the artist, actually. Like, you know, now that you mention it, um, being an executive or being someone who's working on the business side or the behind the scenes, like when you have a hit that you're working on, everybody wants to talk to you. Right, right. But if you don't have that hit anymore, they don't deal with your asshole ways. If you're an asshole, right. oh, yeah, you better correct of, that before you lose that hit. Now you're right. There's a lot of people that I've watched and I've heard a lot of people like, man, I can't wait till he fall off. You know what I'm saying? They just waiting for that time because it's like, but then there's certain people they're just good people, and when they fall, you're like, oh, man, you know, what can we do to help him out, man? Like, you know, just a good dude, you know what I'm saying? I want to make sure he all right, you know? Like, so, yeah, you, it, it definitely definitely goes that way for not just the artist, but the, the business side, too, you know? And, and that's another mistake that artists make is surrounding themselves with the wrong people. 
bad management, you know, homeboy management. Not not saying that I've seen not saying that all homeboy management is, is bad. I've seen people that were just blessed to have a good homeboy that was about his business. But sometimes you don't have a good homeboy that's not about his business. He's just down for the ride. And he's not taking your business serious. And you guys don't realize that you got a short, a small window. And yeah, everything's all good now, but it can be gone tomorrow just that quick, you know? Um, you know, so what you're one mediocre record away from not having a deal and being back to square one. But it's even tougher now because people have seen you fall. So their last memory of you is is defeat. So they're not even looking at you in a positive light. At least if you're brand new, they don't really know what you're bringing, you know? So it, it it's really, you know, I see that mistake made a lot. People bringing the wrong people around them or the homeboys who are just looking to, you know, to, 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 you know, ha- you know, to knock up chicks and, and get in fights, you know what I'm saying? And <laughs> right. So you, you at the club and they walking around just, you know, disrespecting women and you in some foreign place, you know, you ain't never been to Omaha, Nebraska before. You not the man and you know, it's like in belly, you know what I'm saying? The dude right. on the corner, like, yeah, we're going to get them. We're going to get them. They, <laughs> they from New York. Good. Yeah, they slang <laughs> real good, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, you in the middle of, of, of nowhere and everybody there knows each other. And, you know, your homeboys is jumping on all the baddest chicks in there and the local dudes feel disrespected. They just spent $50 to come support you. Right. And now your crew is disrespecting them. Right. First off, you wouldn't even let them get no shine because you told a promoter that nobody could be on the stage and nobody could open up for you. And that's fine if you want it like that. You try That's that's your right as a businessman. But then if you walk around being disrespectful, you, you know, jumping right. on their women, pushing them out the way, acting like they aren't people, you know, that... People have gotten shot, you know what I'm saying? People have lost lives because of stuff like that. So sometimes having the wrong people in your crew, sometimes not even the artist. You know, the artist might be a good dude and he's chilling. One of his homeboys knocks somebody out and charges come down. The only face they recognize is the artist. The artist catches a case. He didn't even touch nobody, but he catches a case. You know, so, or, you know, he ends up getting harmed by somebody locally. So, you know, keeping the wrong people around you can definitely be dangerous. I think that's important to recognize too is when you on the road and people forget it all the time but you in their city. You in their city. They know the, they know the way home. Yeah. You don't. You don't know yeah, exactly. They know and, the duck off spot and all that. And yeah. don't forget that the promoter that booked you and, and paid you the money in advance and is paying you a back end, he might know them too. And right. he, he booked your room, so he knows and, where you're staying tonight, too. And not just that. When you leave, he has a relationship he has to keep with these people, too. Exactly. So, so he's he, more vested in their well-being than your well-being. Than yours. Oh, you, you've already done the show now. He got his. So, he, you know, he don't really need you no more. So treat everybody right, man. These dudes, you know, set you up. You know, I mean, all kind. And, and even if it's not on some, some street danger type of stuff like that, you might lose a fan. You know, that's one less person to buy you on iTunes, one last person to come and pay to go to your show next time, you know? Yeah. Now you know you treat people bad, and now there's a, a a stank on you in that area. And next time you try to get booked out there, you, you know the promoter don't, won't want to pay you as much because there's not as much of a demand to see you. You know, so well all that drama that you were just talking about, that kind of stuff, and you mentioned the reality TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I have noticed though that on most reality TV shows now there are the um, the underlying song with the credits. For whatever artist, I'm, I'm seeing that's becoming actually a pretty big thing. Talk a little bit about that process. Is that something that they they solicit from you guys, or is it something that you actually have to to go to them with? Um, and, and, and how much impact do you think it really it really plays on a record that's trying to be broken? From from what I've been told, because um, I don't really deal with that part of it, but from what I've been told, a lot of times the TV networks will try to look for records that aren't. Big records, so they don't have to, you know, pay big licensing fees and stuff like that. And they they'll try to look for, you know, stuff that they can get, um, but you know, with like with no license, you know, and then, so they don't have to spend any money. You know, what I'm saying like a free license to use uh. it and stuff like that. So that's why, you know, I have a lot of people that are like, yo, I'm watching rally shows. How come the music's, you know, terrible sometimes? You know, what I'm saying <laughs> it's like, you know, sometimes, you know, like my brother always taught me, you know, because he works in the film industry, like at least with, you know, with the movies that he's worked on, unless it's like a movie about music, a lot of times the music is the last item in the budget. So it's the smallest budget and it's the first thing to get cut. You know what I'm saying? So, so I mean, it, it, if you're an unknown artist and you're just trying to get a look, it could be a good thing because, you know, you, now you got millions of people to hear your record and with Shazam, they can hit the button and then find out where to buy it and find out who you are. So it's good, you know, and I think that the reality shows help out with, you know, putting the Shazam logo on the screen and saying Shazam, this, putting the artist name down there helps, you know, unfamiliar artists get noticed. But if you're more an established artist, 
I don't know how much impact it really has to taking you any further than you already are, you know? So what about somebody that, um, let's say you, you've already been out there, you had your big hit record, in mm-hmm. which a lot of these uh, stars on the reality shows have had record deals and they've had, you know, one or two singles, but no, like, immense, they're not icons. Right. All right. Um, if, if that's a, a, for lack of a better word. Right, right, right. Right. But um, but this show is a is their platform to become relevant again. And so, yeah, let me drop this new single that right. relates to my storyline on right, the show. Right. And so now you know. I mean, it, it's possible. I mean, you know, I think that there's no such thing as bad publicity. I really do believe that. You know, I know it's just a cliche, but I do believe it. I, I believe that the more eyeballs you get on you, the better. But it's just all about how you use it. You know what I'm saying? And just making sure that you use it in a way where you stay true to yourself and stay true to your craft. Because I, I feel like people really do believe in stuff that they can relate to. And so if you're on there acting, you know, out of character or just feeling like, you know, if people feel like you're just a spectacle, they're not going to take you seriously a lot of times. So I think it, it can be a, a way to get recognized again. But I think it's all about how you do it. And also, you know, of course, I, I believe that, you know, the good music sticks. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, sometimes you might have that one hit wonder record that's just kind of catchy or it fits the time or it has the catchphrase and it goes up the chart and then goes away. But, you know, good music sticks. So if you're making good music and you're, you're, you know, presenting yourself in a light that makes your fan base excited about engaging you again, then I think it could be, you know, a good opportunity. But the only problem is a lot of times, I think the reality TV companies um, write kind of, write the storyline in a way. So it's like they, they tape all this footage and then they decide how they want the story to play out. Right. You know what I'm saying? So they might not show the part of you that you're trying to get out there and you have no control over that. So that's the only kind of downside. All right, I want I want to talk a little bit about what you what you're working on now, and if we could, let's lead that off with the the first record that led the show in with the Leanne record. So, okay. tell us a little about that record, and then what else you have that you're working on? Okay, yeah, Leanne Lahavis is an amazing artist from London. She's uh, from South London. Um, she's uh, part Greek, part uh, Jamaican. You know, interesting combination. Wow. And um, yeah, her her grandparents on one side are Jamaican, and on the other side were Greek. And um, but both her parents were born in London. And uh, she has an album that dropped uh, July 31st. It's called Blood. And it's a kind of a tribute to her Jamaican bloodline. She went back to Jamaica and kind of got in touch with those roots. She was raised by her Jamaican grandparents, but in London. So she went back to Jamaica and got in touch with those roots. And she's just an amazing singer. You know, Prince has embraced her in a big way. Uh, Rolling Stone wrote a, uh, an amazing review about her album. Um, you know, she she got, uh, you know, the BBC over in the UK has embraced her. Um, right now, we're working her project at Urban Adult Radio in the States. And it's, you know, top 30 record and getting played on a lot of radio stations coast to coast. So, I mean, she's just, she performed at Essence this year. She's just an amazing artist. And the song is called uh, What You Don't Do. That's her second single off the album, Blood. Hey, and, what uh, other things are you working on also? Um, we have... Uh, I work a uh, rhythmic and urban radio promotion. So rhythmic would be like the, for people that don't understand what, what rhythmic means, it's the format between urban and pop, for lack of a better explanation. Like they're the station that might play a couple top 40 records, but also might play a little hip hop from the urban side. They're kind of that middle lane. So um, on the rhythmic side, we have like Jason Derulo. We're working um, a, a record by him uh, called Cheyenne that's uh, really exploding pretty big at Top 40 and at Rhythmic. Uh, Nico and Vince just dropped a new record featuring Kid Ink and BB, uh, BB Rexa. And uh, it's called That's How You Know. And it's a, it's a really dope record, real summertime, catchy record. Um, I think it's going to be really big. And um, we also are doing some work with Funk Volume, and that's uh, who Hobson, he is actually signed to Funk Volume. He's one of the guys who started the label Funk Volume, and they also have a guy out of Atlanta named Jaron Benton and a guy um, out of Vegas named Dizzy Wright, and uh, there's some really dope MCs. And then we also have a, a deal with OVO where we work all of their projects. So last year we worked like Party Next Door and McConan uh, with the Tuesday record, and then uh, this year uh, we had this group, Majid Jordan, that just dropped a record uh, called My Love with Drake on it that's pretty hot, and um, we probably have some more stuff coming from OVO soon. So. Awesome, awesome. Well, Will, we really appreciate you coming out and sitting down and talking with us. Thank you. Oh, yeah, most definitely, man. I it, appreciate it. It was definitely good to have you in the building, man. I hadn't even seen this guy in a minute, so yeah, it was, it was good to get him in the room. Yeah, this is what networking does, man. I appreciate you uh, reaching out and bringing me in. Oh, most definitely, man. And you know what? When when I when 
I was getting my footing in the industry and I was running the the artist factory. Yeah. Man. This was one of the guys that used to pull me to the side and give me a little jewels. And you know what? Don't worry about it, man. Keep going. Like, you'll be okay. Kev, just keep in yeah. touch with me, but you're going to be good. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, he was always a good dude, always had a good energy and, and personality about yourself. So, you know, you remember those type of people and you want to see them win. So, good to see you doing your thing, man. That's awesome, man. Thanks again. Will Wallace, everybody, right here on the 9010 Rule. Visit us at the9010rule.com. That's 9010rule.com.